Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. And after an unexpectedly protracted hiatus, welcome back to RetroTube Archive Television Podcast. For those of you without Elephant Time memories, this is the podcast where two best friends introduce each other to some of the best and most bonkers television that the 60s, 70s and 80s had to offer. This time it's my final episode of three, which means I was saving the biggest show for last. We're leaving the swinging London of 1965 behind for pastures new. We're not even going to hop over the Atlantic for any zany adventures in vigilanteism. We aren't even going to Canada, although we will be meeting a Canadian or two. No folks, it's time we look to the future. And it's high time that Adam and I pack a nice picnic lunch in our knapsacks before we boldly go where no retro tube episode has gone before. That's right folks. I'm talking about space, the final frontier, and a show that no self-respecting retro television podcast should ever leave out of its canon. I'm talking about the incomparable Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Star Trek premiered on September the 8th, 1966 and ran for a modest 79 episodes over three seasons on NBC. It follows the adventures of Captain James Tiberius Kirk, Commander Spock, Dr. Leonard Horatio McCoy, three men so horribly in love with each other that they chose to live in a tin can in space for five years, just so that they can be together. Pretty sure that's the premise. In any event, when the show originally aired, it was received with an almighty meh and was all set to be cancelled after the second season. Thanks to a barrage of complaints from fans not so ready to say goodbye to Kirk and the gang, NBC granted a third season but moved the show to the Friday night death slot of 10pm Eastern, where ratings remained poor and the show was finally put out of its misery on June the 3rd, 1969, which would have been my birthday. The show reached a retrospective notoriety and fame throughout the 70s and 80s, partly due to the spin-off film series and cartoon show featuring the original cast, and partly because of their steadfastly loyal and ever-expanding fan base. Until now, Star Trek is one of the most lucrative, and enduring franchises in televisual and cinematic history. I resisted watching Star Trek for many years due to a long-standing William Shatner phobia, which we'll talk about in a minute. However, when I finally did start watching it about a decade ago, I instantly fell in love with it. But Adam, <clears throat> what are your views on Star Trek? <laughs> What's your history been with the show? What were your preconceptions going on into the source material for this recording? And did you enjoy the episodes we watched today? Well, I think that anyone my age 
can't not have seen Star Trek at some point in their life. This is definitely not one of those episodes where it's a brand new thing. No. I would say it's probably, out of all the things you've chosen for me, the thing that I'm most familiar with. But then you can't not be because it's so part of just general culture. Yes. Even if you've never seen Star Trek, you know who Mr Spock is and who Captain Kirk is. That is a fact. So I used to watch it when I was little and it was probably the least exciting of all the space shows and science fiction shows available to me then. This was my perception of it at the time. Uh, I was a huge Star Wars fan. Yes. Even before I was a confirmed Doctor Who fan. It was star it was all about Star Wars. It was all about explosions and laser battles and adrenaline rush. It was all about the pew pew pew. It was very much about the pew pew pew. Whereas Star Trek seemed to be mostly about kissing and learning. Lots of kissing, lots of learning, moral Who lessons. Who doesn't like both of those things? <laughs> So as an eight-year-old, it was Star Wars all the way for me. And there was things, there was Doctor Who, there was Blake Seven, there was things like Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. And Star Trek was at the least adrenaline fueled end of things. It's a very, it's quite a language show, which is not necessarily a criticism because I think every science fiction show in particular has to carve out its own vibe in its own world it's its own texture that it occupies mm. within the landscape of sci-fi shows so you can't be too beige and bland and generic you have to be very distinctive and star trek is very very distinctive it's very distinctly star trek and also having said it was quite languid and low on adrenaline it wasn't actually boring it was something i watched and i probably enjoyed i think i found it very very eerie it looked and felt unlike anything else on TV. So it didn't, obviously, it's a quite a glossy, expensive American TV show. So it didn't look like Blake Seven and Doctor Who, which was held together with sellotape and staples. Yes. And was made of cardboard. And it didn't look like any of the other American shows. So it didn't look like the cheap and nasty Glenn A. Larson shows, which weren't held together by sellotape. The production values were a bit better than that, but they, they weren't glossy. No. They were much more 70s than that. And the 60s shows that I did know, like Batman and the Monkeys, are a lot more zany and wild and wacky. Mm. But Star Trek was this odd, slightly haunting show. Oddly pristine, and it was back then it was impossible to tell how old it was. I didn't really have any context for decades. I didn't really know it was contemporary with Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was another thing I was obsessed by at the time. All these cultural things, it was sort of like little remote islands, and I couldn't really connect them in my mind of how they related to each other time-wise. So Star Trek was just this odd... It sort of felt preserved, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It has a reputation... It can have a reputation for being corny, but I, yeah, I found it... A little haunting. Not like a spooky Victorian thing, but more like a mysterious colour postcard from a stranger. Those weird kind of powder blues and reds and yellows of 60s film stock. I know exactly the ones you mean. But it, yes, it's never been a favourite. I think because... No. Uh, because I have <laughs> because I haven't really watched it much since. It's a bit like The Prisoner, actually. So when we talked about The Prisoner, it's one of those things that periodically I'll, I'll think to myself... Maybe I just didn't get it before. Maybe I, I've, I'm old enough now and I can sit down and watch it. And then I go, no, I still didn't really like it. But to come to your other question, I actually did like this a lot more than The Prisoner. I don't know if that's blasphemy. Oh, goodness. No, that's fine. That's fine. Just as long as you liked something. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> I was expecting a lot more sneering, to be honest. I had, <laughs> I was, I had built myself up for an onslaught of two hours of, <laughs> well, this isn't Doctor Who, and me going, huh, sorry, my show's got a budget, mister. <laughs> <laughs> I think with Star Trek, you have a head start because you already know the characters very well. One thing you can say about Star Trek is that you have to like the characters. You have to at least like Bones and Spock. You do. It's impossible to not. Whatever your thoughts on Shatner and Kirk, either one or the other, you have to like Bones, you have to like Spock. Scotty is very likeable. They're all likeable. Scotty is very likeable. And and Uhura, well, basically, it's Uhura's ship. She just lets Jim live on it. <laughs> yeah, she she lets him think he's in charge. We all know the truth. Yes. Unlike The Prisoner, who which doesn't have a likeable central character, which is the no. main reason I find it a bit difficult to watch. Whatever's going on in the Star Trek episode itself, at least you've got the characters you can watch. And they're legendary now, really, aren't they? They're, they're kind of almost mythical. Yeah. Whatever's going on on screen, you can just watch Spock doing stuff and Bones doing stuff, usually bickering. Usually bickering, always my favourite thing. You can watch Kirk walking around looking for things. In soft focus. <laughs> yes, we'll certainly come to that. <laughs> so we watched two episodes, and these were hand-picked episodes. So obviously, you picked ones that that uh, would be watchable, and certainly been some that I've attempted to watch that I haven't managed to make it all the way through. I chose these two episodes, in fact, specifically because I thought it might give an, a, a different sort of look at Jim, particularly. Because I know that, as, as I said in, in the intro, the whole reason I haven't been watching Star Trek all my life is because my irrational William Shatner phobia just, was just always something, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to say anything personal, but it was just like, just sometimes you just get that with people, that they haven't done anything wrong. They're just sitting there minding their own business, and your entire body, <laughs> when you see them, just goes, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't get that. I always have. If if I dislike a celebrity, it's usually for specific reasons. I know, but you're a lot nicer than I am. <laughs> I, I, um, then when I finally did get into watching Star Trek, and it took me a while to kind of get used to him, but now, ten years on, I flipping love Jim Kirk, huh. and, and I'm not like. I don't flipping love Jim Kirk in in the way that I flipping love in the way that I flipping love Bones. No, because that's that's completely different. He's your favourite, isn't he? Ugh, just honestly, <laughs> flipping Bones McCoy. Just what a man! What a man! I haven't got time to start on this. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> you can. It's it's a perfect opportunity. It's the Star Trek episode. It's all about Leonard McCoy for me. It's all about Leonard McCoy. What more do you want? He's got the best accent. Yeah, he's got two accents. He's got two accents. We'll find out later. He's got his posh one and then his his <laughs> one that only comes out during certain times. He goes full Georgia. He's very grumpy. He very much loves Spock and he's very much mad about it. <laughs> and he is the one, he's the one least afraid of showing any emotion he wants to at any time. He doesn't care. He is just a big ball of emotion and most of it's grumpiness. <laughs> I mean, it's been very well documented about how I feel about a grumpy man. So, yes, it's all about bones for me. But I I now, 
I'm very much I loved I love Jim Kirk because he has a very bad rep. Whenever you mention Jim Kirk, everybody's like, no, he does nothing but snog people. And that's just not true. There are a small handful of episodes in series one where he he gets to smooch someone. There are a small handful of episodes in the entire series where he actually ends up with a lady. When you actually watch the entire series, although he's not kind of afraid of, he's not afraid of his sexuality or his, like he's comfortable in the fact that he has an allure and he can use it to his advantage in certain ways and certain situations. His main focus is always on the welfare of the people who are entrusted to his care. And you very much feel as though he is fueled, for want of a better term, by his love of the crew in general and his ship specifically. His true love is certainly the Enterprise. And we see that very much in the second episode. We certainly do. That we saw. He's just a man who's got an awful lot of love stored up inside him. And he is actually, although although he has the ability to be, to, to kind of, shut off part of his emotion to to get the job done that he needs to do as the leader of of his team as as a starship commander he has the ability to make really bold decisions and to make really hard decisions everything that he does stems from a love of his duty of his crew and of his ship. And I just think he's to reduce him to being, oh, he's such a horn dog. Cause he's not, he's not, he's just, it's just that it so happens that sometimes in episodes there are people he smooches, but it's not just him. It happens to other people as well. He's not the only character. This there are true. other characters <laughs> who have love interests. It's fine. It's not all Jim. Watching it this time, he actually reminded me a lot of the Brigadier from Doctor Who. This is not a connection, oh, yes. not a comparison you hear very often. But no. he's a military man through and through, and he can be a bit of a military buffoon at times. Well, I mean, you know, that's military men for you. But also, he's very clever, and he will have a, uh, a nice little smirk with his colleagues, which the brigadier is wont to do as well. Mm. He'll be quite quite playful and twinkly, and he he can be a bit he can be a bit indignant if his crew are behaving oddly and he will try and bark orders at them before assuming that something is amiss with them. He'll be more indignant in a military way. So if someone is behaving out of character, he'll get really angry with them because they're not obeying, obeying command rather than instantly thinking, well, this is this is wrong. Surely this is wrong. <laughs> get him out! <laughs> uh, which, that, and that, uh, this, this is something that crops up in the second episode we watched, and that really reminded me of the Brigadier. Whereas I think most people would go... This person I've known for years is not behaving like themselves. There's something strange here. And he'll just be like, how dare you disobey me? How dare you be mutinous? Arrest this man, which is very, very brigadier. So I think they're quite, they're both wise and clever and compassionate, but also they have military minds. Miss Colomi, you'll have to come back with us to the settlement and prepare to transport up to the ship. There'll be no evacuation, Jim. But perhaps we should go back and get you straightened out. Mr. Sulu. Mr. Spark is under arrest and he's in your custody until we get back to the Enterprise. So we watched two episodes. We did. We watched Balance of Terror 
on this side of paradise. I, although, like, Balance of Terror, I think, is a really, really iconic one. And it, for me, it was certainly, when I first watched the show, Balance of Terror stood out to me as being the moment that Jim sort of stopped being the Jim that I expected and became the leader. So it was a very, it was a pivotal episode for me. I think this was the episode that really cemented the fact that this was my, this was one of my shows that I was completely in love with now. Um, And This Side of Paradise was, it was a really easy choice because of how, I mean, if, if, if there are any Star Trek fans listening to this, you will know, but it was nice to see another side of, specific characters that you would not expect and um, i wanted i wanted you to see a difference i wanted you to see that as well yes it was a good good, good contrasting episodes so Thank one you. entirely set on board the spaceship and then one way they get to go outward bound which is uh it's always nice to have and an away crew. trip yes and an away crew episode is always a good one to have oh yes would you like to tell us what balance of terror is all about yes so balance of terror is essentially a remake of the world war Two film the enemy below which is about an american ship which plays cat and mouse with a uh, german u-boat I, I did a little bit of research and the director of balance of terror admitted that it's essentially the same story and it's so it's it's a space remake of the enemy below so this is presumably the first time we encounter the romulans it is the setup is there's romulan space and then federation space and then a neutral zone in the middle and all along the edge of the neutral zone is our earth colonists yes and our dashing heroes have lost contact with the earth colonies or, or certain ones in this certain part of space and they fear something's terrible has happened and the navigator says well we all know who's who's responsible for this then don't we tusk <laughs> and it turns out they have indeed been attacked by romulans do we ever find out why they were attacked by romulans no we don't just because the romulans are baddies oh. the romulans just decided that they were gonna break through the neutral zone potentially start a war just because they were feeling that way out the, the Romulan crew are the campest space crew I've ever seen. Well, you've not seen enough episodes of Star Trek yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fl- 1930s Flash Gordon theme night at a gay bar. <laughs> it really is. Uh, yes. I mean, the Romulan captain and his second-in-command, who's called Centurion, they're clearly a couple. Oh, yes. I mean, the way he the way he clings to his hand. I mean, there's a lot of love going on, guys. Centurion's such a sweet character as well. He's this little old guy. He, he is. He, he rolls his eyes at one point when so the captain's being really dramatic. <laughs> you can see Centurion rolling his eyes. Yes. So they're quite adorable, they I are think, quite the Romulans. Adorable. Take care, Commander has friends and friends of his kind mean power and power is danger danger and i are old companions we've seen a hundred campaigns together and still i do not understand you i think you do no need to tell you what happens the moment we reach home with proof of the earthmen's weakness and we will have proof the earth commander will follow he must and when he attacks we will destroy him our gift to the homeland another war If we are the strong, is this not the signal for war? Must it always be so? How many comrades have we lost in this way? Our portion, Commander. 
is obedience. Obedience. Guilty. Death and more death. Soon even enough for the Praetor's test. Centurion, I find myself wishing for destruction before we can return. Worry not. Like you, I'm too well trained in my duty to permit it. Continue evasive maneuvers. Now, back to the first course. The uh, Romulan leader... I'm just going to quickly get this bit out of the way. The Romulan leader is played by Mark Leonard, who is more familiar to Star Trek fans as Sarek, a.k.a. Spock's dad. However, it turns out that the role of Romulan leader was Mark Leonard's favourite role, not Sarek. I think it's a more interesting... It's seen, a far more I've, interesting role because Sarek basically is just a douche. I've seen the episode with Spock's father in a, and I thought he looked familiar, the Romulan leader. Yeah, well, Mark Leonard has been in everything, let's be fair. He also played a Klingon as well. On Wikipedia it says he's the only actor to have played a Romulan and a Vulcan and a Klingon. He went where the work was. Um, he he played a Japanese guy on Hawaii Five-0. I mean, he doesn't oh care. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess they did back then. They didn't did. They? they did back then. It was it was yeah. just what it was. But the he is not the he's not the only one who has played uh, a, a Romulan and a Vulcan because we also see Lawrence Montaigne who plays Decius, not the second in command, the gobby one. Oh, him. The gobby one. Uh, he played Ston. In season two, episode one, my actual favourite episode, Amok Time. Who calls their child Ston? Vulcans. Oh. And potentially the best line that Spock has ever, ever uttered, the most human line he has ever uttered, he uttered on Vulcan, when uh, at, at the end of Amok Time, he said to Tupring, <clears throat> I see no reason to choose Ston over me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm with you, Spock. I understand. We've all been there, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> choose life. Choose Ston. Yeah, Ston Schmon. <laughs> anyway, um, it turns out also, speaking of Romulans and Vulcans, you may or may not have noticed that Romulans and Vulcans have... Uh, have a little something, something in common. That's right, guys. They all have pointy ears. They well, do. It turns out that uh, the makeup department, it was a bit of a skimp week. They were they were all waiting for payday and uh, there weren't enough pointy ears to go around. So the only people who got pointy ears were Spock and the Romulan leader and the Centurion. And to cover up the fact that nobody else <laughs> could, have, <laughs> could have pointy ears, they gave everybody else help. <laughs> I don't know why that's the funniest thing to me. (laughs) But it really is. It really is. Anyway, you carry on. So one of the rules of screenwriting is show, don't tell. But I think actually this is a great example why you can break that rule. Because this is basically an action film, but done almost entirely through dialogue and information. And it works really well. It does. It's tense and it's gripping and it's it's these two spaceships locked in this spaceships locked in this cat and mouse 
game on the border of Romulan space or the neutral zone, which they're not allowed to breach. Mm. And it's all done through the two captains talking to their crew and the crews talking to their captains and concocting tactics between themselves. And the information is reported back to them through dialogue. So there's a few shots of spaceships flying through, flying through space, and the spaceships flying through space, and laser blasts and whatnot. But it's it's 95% dialogue based, but it works. Yeah, it does. Battle status. All stations bad, Captain. Laser weapons energized. Set for proximity blast. Intruder now bearing directly for comet's tail. Plot is exact point of entry, Mr. Styles. Computer. On the board, sir. The moment he begins entering the comet's tail, he becomes visible. Engron, gentlemen, will swing around the other side and catch him at that moment. Acknowledge, Captain. He's maintaining that bearing, Captain. Let's get him, Mr. Sula. How pleasing to the eye it is. Behold a marvel in the darkness. You spoke of entrapment. Many particles will obscure their sensing device, Centurion. We enter it, Commander. Once fully obscured, we'll turn suddenly back upon our adversary. At last, the screen is clear, Commander. Clear. Our reflection no longer follows us. Escape maneuver one, quickly! It was a really nice, I really don't like to use the word juxtaposition, but it was a nice contrast. I can use it because I know it. Uh, But I choose not to because I don't want people to think that I'm really pretentious. Oh, (laughs) I I use it. I use it all the time. I'm not saying anything. Um, (laughs) I thought it was a nice contrast, um, what with all of the war going on, to start off the episode with a wedding ceremony, mm. which was cut short, obviously, because they were under attack from the Romulans. But Jim really looked so happy to be able to be conducting this wedding ceremony. Like, yes, we get to do something fun. We get to do something nice. This is a great day for everybody. The only thing that really bothered me, I think, yeah, it, it did bother me. The only thing that bothered me massively was the fact that Neither the bride nor groom had an alternate dress for <laughs> oh, yes. their actual just, wedding. She put a couple of feathers in They were just in their, in their own outfits, weren't they? <laughs> but like she was still wearing a she was still wearing a Starfleet uniform. She wasn't even wearing her Starfleet dress uniform. She was just you. It was just a regular uniform. Like, dude, you're allowed to dress. It's it's your wedding. You can wear what you want. Um, Maybe they didn't schedule it. Maybe they just had to wait until Kirk was available. Yeah. And it's like, oh, he's he's got five minutes. (laughs) We've got ten minutes. And another thing, another thing I really, really liked about the the, the two seconds of wedding ceremony was the way that Janice was looking at Jim as he was talking. Now, the the, the relationship between Janice Rand and Jim Kirk is one of my favourite romances that never happened. I, I wasn't sure, actually. I adore, I adore Jim and Jam. So much, and they had such. 
it was such a lovely and, and such an honest relationship because they obviously felt something very real for each other. But because of because of his position as the captain and her position as his yeoman, it would have been unethical. It would have been difficult. It would have it would have been an imbalance of power. So nothing could happen. But they were very clearly they very clearly had a thing between them that never happened. Um, I think that was that was brought brought out as well a little bit later on in the episode where she just came in and she was like, shall I just keep on doing... Oh, there's something going on here. Oh, dear. I think I've turned up at the wrong moment. And, and then when the Romulans attacked or were just about to attack, Jim didn't even need to look at it. He just reached out and they just, like, clung to each other for a bit. For like Yes, that's what made me wonder if there was actually a thing going on. There but wasn't an actual thing it's... going on, but it, I think it was an, it was an un... It had definitely been hinted. It had definitely been mentioned. He'd outwardly said it to Bones in an, in a previous episode, uh, in, in more than one previous episode. She had actually admitted to him in a previous episode. There was definitely there were definitely feelings. There was definite tension, Ooh. and I really hate the fact that she was only in a few episodes. But horrible things happened to poor old Grace Lee Whitney, and um, uh, that's. That's why, um, and she did not deserve it because no, no, nobody deserves it. Janice Rand and Grace Lee Whitney both deserved so much better than what happened to them. I love the colours. I said this about Batman as well. It's the same era. The colours are beautiful, the same production values, but the, the colours are absolutely gorgeous, yeah. particularly in this high res restoration of it. Oh yes. Um, what is less gorgeous with this high res high res resolution though? Can you guess what it is I'm going to say? You're going to talk about the new effects, aren't you? I am. I'm going to mention the new effects. Yeah. I don't want to dwell on them because we're talking about the 1960s show, but they just look wrong. They don't fit. No, they, they, they don't. This is the only version that I've seen, so it, 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 I, it's not like I've got anything really to compare it to. Um, that kind of... I just don't care. I don't care. I'm sorry. I I, I, I I just don't. I just don't. <laughs> I know they're in a ship. I know they're in space. I know there is a certain amount of pew-pew that is going to happen. <laughs> That's fine. That's all I care about. The, the technical sort of, you know, the, the, the graphics that we used now, the graphics that we used, the attempt to marry them up, I get that it doesn't work. I get that it doesn't fit. But I really don't care because, do you know for why? I know... I am not watching a documentary. I don't care. <laughs> Shall I tell you why I do care? You tell me. I have, I have multiple reasons, but okay. I'll run through them quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, first one is, it just pulls me out of it. Like, I know it's not real, but I like being absorbed into the 1960s feel of it. So then to have these horrible... Yeah, no, that's completely fair. Incredible, clinical, soulless CG moments. Yeah, I get that. Which are... And I, I did look at, on YouTube, I looked at what they originally look like and they are very very close to the point that it's pointless to have done it i think what they would do now i i I get the feeling this is a few years old just by the quality of the graphics i think now they would just clean up the effects and not replace them yeah the original effects were fine they were done on a budget they were fine yeah and i think if if we're going to accept you know these papier mache planets with the papier mache rocks or 
quite plain corridor sets, then we can accept the original model work and the original planet work and that kind of stuff. I agree. So there's that. I also dislike the fact that it's essentially removing the hard work of people who worked on the show. It's a team effort, so everyone who worked on the show, you've got all the lighting and sound people whose work is still there, you've got the set builders whose work is still there, and all the designers whose work is still present, and the musicians, but the people who did the special effects, they've been they've been surgically removed and replaced by some soulless graphics. And it's a similar thing that happened to the to Red Dwarf as well. And actually the computer graphics that they put in Red Dwarf and I mean these are much better computer graphics than the one that we put in the ones they put into Red Dwarf, but it just seemed like a case of putting in something new for the sake of putting in something new. Because yeah, actually I get the that. model work is a lot more convincing in the original Red Dwarf than the horrible shiny computer graphics. I just find it jarring. I'm very sensitive to texture and I, I love to be immersed in the sixtiesness of it. And same with Star Wars. Like I don't like the 90s CG additions to that because it pulls me out of the lovely 70s hug that I get from yeah. Star Wars. No, I, I, I mean, th- these are all really valid reasons. But I get that your suspension of disbelief is of a completely different level to mine. <laughs> yes. I don't, need, I don't need any help. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I have a suspension of belief. <laughs> But yes, I love the colours and I do love how it's all been tidied up and it looks very pristine now. And uh, Kirk has clearly been at the sunbeds. Oh, yes. You don't get a tan like that in space. Nobody does. They should all look like the Beatles recording Get Back. Yes. They should be that kind of um, (laughs) of complexion. They should all be translucent. (laughs) Translucent little golems eating toast and drinking tea. Oh, I would love to have an episode like that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> with, with, with Jim being all like, yeah, but maybe we could try it in B minor. <laughs> <laughs> but they, yes, they have some, they have gyms and sunbeds and They do nice have gyms and the sunbeds. They're, and they're nice all food. very healthy looking. They are all healthy looking. And they, they really are because the, the, the I, I mean... The ladies' outfits do not seem as practical as you might think. I, I didn't think they looked practical. They, they didn't look practical. I mean, I'm not being funny. Speaking as a person with a bottom that has basically its own postcode, I don't understand how anybody can get their work done without being completely preoccupied in case somebody can see your knickers. They're very short skirts, aren't they? They are so short. It's like, I mean, honestly, it's a good job they're living in a vacuum because one misplaced gust of wind and everybody's (laughs) going to know you better than your own gynecologist. I swear. (laughs) Honestly. I mean, nobody thought that through. Generally, they're not flattering outfits they wear. They are not. I feel self-conscious if I don't have a row of buttons down the front. (laughs) I understand that. Because I, I feel self-conscious if I am not covered from neck to ankles, including arms, down to wrists. I could never join Starfleet for the uniform alone. No, it's, it wouldn't suit me, certainly. I don't know. I think you'd probably suit maybe the blue. That would look nice on you. Oh, yeah. I'd like the blue one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that science? Yeah, science is. So red is security and engineering, presumably. Yes, it is. What's gold? Command. Command, OK. Now... There's a lot of people wearing gold in this, though. They, they can't all be, I guess they're all officers in some way. But there are a lot of officers. Uhura 
in some of the early episodes because obviously uh, because the episodes were filmed out of order to the way that they were shown but in a, a couple of early episodes Uhura's dress is gold my personal headcanon is that she wore gold on deck and for, for a little while and then she went to the gym and she said listen up captain I look way better in red so I'm gonna <laughs> gonna change I'm gonna change and I'm gonna I'm gonna start wearing a red uniform and he was like well you shouldn't because that's not that's not the department you're actually in she's like if I have to answer phones for the rest of my time I am going to wear <laughs> red he went you can she wear red. red you can wear red you wear red that's <laughs> fine it looks better on you I feel there should be more colours. I feel there should be green and purple as well, though. Green and purple as well would be good. I think three is just a bit limiting. What do catering wear? Oh, uh, well, th- there is no catering because everything oh, it's is... all space food. E- every- it's all space food and it's all, like, vending machine. You, you do see this in um... some episodes where they're, in, where they're in the canteen area and everything is just... Like, you, you, put, in, you put tokens into a machine and then your meal will appear. So there, there is no actual catering. Yes, I like the wedding scene. It's a bit smug and it's a bit smirksome. But I think that's quite good because when it's interrupted by the emergency, that is quite dramatic. It is. Since the days of the first wooden vessels, all shipmasters have had one happy privilege. That of uniting two people in the bonds of matrimony. And so we are gathered here today with you, Angela Martin, and you, Robert Tomlinson. In the sight of your fellows, in accordance with our laws and our many beliefs so that you may pledge your... Earth Outpost 4 reports they are under attack. Space vessel, identity unknown. Go ahead. All decks, condition red. And then we see a star map showing the uh, neutral zone between Romulan and Federation space. And I love that it looks like an illustration from a, a 1960s American school textbook. It's very evocative. Yes, it is. And I love the fact that the two that the two neighbouring planets are Romulus and Remus. I love the, the Roman mythology. Oh, here's, here's a quick aside just about the, the wedding. So the woman who's being married, the bride, yes. as they're often called, her name's Angela Martine. En- Ensign Martine. Hmm. And it seems to be a thing that I've noticed that often a female character who will generally be known by her surname mm. will have a rather feminine-sounding surname as well. Yeah, I guess uh, so. I haven't thought of that. In the Battlestar Galactica remake, the president was called President Rosalind. Which sounds a lot like Rosalind. It does. So we can we can call her President Rosalind. We can call her Rosalind, mm. and it still sounds like you're using a first name because it is a thing that, particularly in science fiction and things like Doctor Who, but also golden era science fiction novels, of that men are known by their surnames, women are known by their first names. So I wonder if it's a slightly subconscious thing of giving women who would be known by their surnames a feminine sounding surname. That's just that's just an idea I'm putting out there. It's not a it's not even a theory. It's just a thought. I don't I don't know. I think Star Trek is the best sci-fi show at doing quietness, particularly in this episode. It has a lot of room to breathe. Oh, it does. It does. And oh, the tension from nothing. You know, when everything yes. gets, when everything goes silent and they've got all of the lights off and everything is just everybody's just sat there and they're not just sat there for like a couple of seconds. This is quite a protracted. We are just sitting here. 
and they won't even speak, they will only whisper. Yes, and I love the sound design that's all these layers of... I think it, it, the only thing equivalent is Ben Burt's work on Star Wars, all these these fascinating layers of... <laughs> I don't want to like undermine it by saying bleeps and bloops, but it's lots of layers of bleeps, bleeps and, and bloops. bloops and really interesting sound design work. And it change, it's always shifting and changing. There's always different sounds and different types of sounds and different layers to it. It's not just one sound going on in the background. It's all these interesting layers, which did remind me of Ben Burt on Star Wars. Who, and I think that's a big chunk of making a convincing universe, convincing world building in a film and TV is is sound design, particularly in something, particularly in in uh, science fiction. So it feels alive and organic, and it helps the enterprise feel like one of the characters yes very much You know, that is such a great scene, the whole scene, um, because it starts off, Jim's just like lying on lying on his bed, sort of trying to kind of keep it together. And you can visibly see him. I can't break. I haven't got time because we've got things to do. But ah, and then Janice comes in. And even though, as we've said, there is real, real tension between them and they do genuinely care for each other in more than a, Captain Yeoman capacity. When Janice comes in, and this is kind of, this kind of really flies in the face of Jimmy's some sort of like permahorny predator type. She asks him if he wants anything and he just shakes his head and then she says, what about coffee? And went, yeah, just take it to the bridge and I'll be there in a minute. And like, they don't really say anything else to each other, but he knows that she's there for him and she knows that there's probably something going on that he's not ready to tell her, but she gives him that room to breathe because she has the respect for him as the captain. And I thought that was really nice. And then when she leaves and Bones comes in to take over the scene, Bones is potentially, even even at the expense of Spock, Bones, I think, is the only person that Jim will really tell his truest innermost feelings to. Because I cannot see Jim Kirk ever asking another crew member if what he's doing is the right thing. That's a very good speech that Bones gives. It's a, it's a I, I wrote it out. moving speech. I wrote it out. On, you sure, deliver it. I'm sure that you will put the actual sound clip in. But he says, in this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets. And in all of the universe, three million million galaxies like this. And in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. It's a lesson to all of us. And that is such a, 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 beaut- a beautiful way to tell somebody that you love them. Isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It makes me cry Just every kiss, time. Damn it. I know. That's 100% <laughs> how I felt. I know. 
No, it's not. It's not a. It's not a romantic scene, really. But it's very moving. It's, it is very, it's about very. Kirk not throwing his life away in the service of his military things that he's doing, and just not to doubt himself as well, mm. and not to not to make any decisions that are, that are rash because because of his self doubt because he clearly was full of of that. But Bones just was like, well, you, you, you're doing your best and you know what you're doing and you you have faced, you've faced situations like this before. Don't, don't doubt yourself. Don't ruin things. You've got this. There's only one of you and you are so important because there is so much world and universe out there and there's nobody else like you and nobody else can do this. Only you. It was so pure and it was so honest. And I really love, I think that's the thing that I love about Star Trek. Not at the expense of Star Wars, because I love Star Wars as well. And, you know, Blake 7, etc, etc, etc. I'm not like, it's not like this is my one and only sci-fi thing. But the thing I really love about Star Trek is how deeply emotional it is and how unafraid it is of being so deeply emotional, despite the fact that it's, essentially a very masculine show yes although i have thoughts on and i think it it varies from writer to writer and director to director mm. because i have thoughts on that for the next episode but certainly certainly for this episode it's a very emotional and charged episode even amongst the romulans yes yeah they do a really good job of making them believable and likable characters and not just because it's so easy to have these stock alien races this is the warlike race and they always behave in a warlike fashion but these are quite rounded characters yeah they're not kind of baddie of the week sort of hey here we are you're going to defeat us in the end so it doesn't really matter like these are these are people who have obviously got wants and personalities of their own and enough charisma in this in in the screen time that they get and and the dialogue and the relationships between the three or four people on deck to make you root for them to make you feel for them when the end happens when eventually as we always knew would happen the enterprise prevails you do genuinely feel sad for the romulan leader that he has lost and that he is losing his life especially the way that he not surrenders, but acknowledges his fate. Yes, you do end up rooting for them in a, in a weird way. You do. E- even though we never find out their motivation for attacking the colonists, he he isn't just this awful space fascist. No. He's a very sympathetic, sympathetic leader and you feel bad for him when he's becoming defeated and when his, his little friend dies. 
He's very upset when Centurion dies. The episode is about the two captains having this growing respect for each other, so that by the end of it they feel they're almost friends. Yeah, it's true. And also because of the similarities between them and the the fact that their approach to, to the battle is pretty much mirrors each other, it kind of gives you the idea that the line between the good guys and the bad guys is a lot greyer than you may think. Yes. And again, this is something we'll see in the next episode as well, mm. in, a, in a very different way. Oh, on the Starship Enterprise, there's someone who's in Satan's guise. Whose devil ears and devil eyes could rip your heart from you? We love Uhura. And I, I love the fact that her earrings are the most 60s things to ever come out of the 60s. She has like neon green earrings. They are hoop earrings. They are plastic. That's great. And they go so well with her uniform. It's like, wow. She just slays. Just every time, every time she appears on screen, you're just like, I don't even care about anything else. Look at Uhura. We also have um, Navigator Styles, who is our shipboard bigot. Oh my uh, and god! I, I wrote, I wrote some panicked notes, which said, "I'm learning, I'm learning." No. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote. Stop! I don't want to. I don't want to be learning. <laughs> I wrote Styles, the dirty racist bastard. Ooh, he is though. Um, he is. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't write it for fun. <laughs> so the setup is the Romulans look very similar, if not identical, to the Vulcans, which makes the navigator, who is not a regular character, extremely suspicious and hostile towards Mr. Spock and he feels he's probably a traitor and he is not afraid of making very passive-aggressive comments to this effect and sometimes sometimes just outright aggressive aggressive ones. It's true, it's true. Um, I love the fact that Spock actually doesn't care. No, he doesn't care. He's got no emotions. I don't care. He's like the George Harris. (laughs) He's the George Harrison of days. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Uh, but I quite enjoyed because I was a bit worried that the episode would just become about finger wagging and it would be very preachy, which I think would be fine for ninety for nineteen sixty seven. But for us watching it now, it might be a bit too obvious and unsubtle. But actually, it, it's quite in the background and, and it's mostly about the action, mostly about the interaction between these two spaceships having this cat and mouse thing going on. So it, it is a subplot, which I was a bit relieved about. I think Star Trek does does handle those kinds of issues in a really good way because obviously it was, you know, 1967, there was still, there was still a lot of segregation even going on in, in America. There was, there was the Vietnam War, there was, there was stuff there was stuff going on in America. America was a very dangerous place to live. It was. It was not. It was not all peace and love, my friends. And there were an awful lot of things that you couldn't mention outright on television. One of the good things, one of the qualities of Gene Roddenberry, was that he used the allegory of space travel and different planets to directly address a lot of the problems that were going on at the time. One of the greatest things about Star Trek is how diverse the casting is. We've spoken about 
the goddess Ahura. She is often reduced to being described as just the lady who picks up the phone. She was a lieutenant. She was she was a commanding officer. She had a position of authority and she was a black woman on television in 1966 with a position of authority. Not only was she a communications officer, which doesn't sound like much, but she was the one who who held everything together and was the one who was communicating not only to, to Starfleet and back, but between different planets and between between her own ship and potential enemies. Her role on the Enterprise was pivotal. She was if Ahura went down, it all went down. In fact, Michelle Nichols was going to quit. I think after after a few episodes but Martin Luther King spoke to her and he said you don't understand you don't understand how important your role is for not just for black people but for black women especially this is a thing that they they can aspire to women black women can do anything because they can see you in a position of authority you are not the maid you are not the you are not just a role that would have stereotypically been filled by a, by a black woman. And then the, there are characters like like Sulu. Sulu, again, he is he's the chief navigator on board. Like, they, nobody's going anywhere without Sulu, uh, who's a Japanese-American. George Takei grew up in, in a camp because it was at a time that Japanese people were completely viewed as the enemy in America. He grew up during World War Two. He was an internment camp, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And he grew up and had a position of authority on television. And, and like everybody, everybody loved George Takei. And he, you know, so the the barriers that Star Trek broke down simply by having a mixed race crew, a mixed a mixed gender crew. There are women doing all kinds of things. Women are able to do whatever it is that they want to do. Mm. It doesn't matter because just because they're women doesn't mean that they are limited. And that is a thing that is, it's still very much a thing even now. But Gene Roddenberry had this idea that stuff like gender and race and, you know, to an extent, although it was never really addressed, obviously, in, in the confines of 1960s America, sexuality, it didn't matter because he was convinced that there would be a time that none of this mattered and your ability was the only thing that counted. It's still amazing to me how hopeful it is, how encouraging it is, how forward thinking it was and how much hope and how much uh, how much agency it gave to people and still gives to people who feel that because they aren't white, cis, het, male anything outside of that it doesn't matter because the only thing the only thing that counts is whether you can or you can't do the job as a person who, who considers themselves being quite other in various ways due to due to disabilities due to uh due to gender due to a lot of lot of things that i don't talk about just knowing that eventually then there will be a time that it doesn't matter what i can't do or what i look like or what other people think should be my limit. There will be a time that you can do anything and you can make that time whenever you want because that's what television does. That's what that's what the best television should do. It should make you feel able to do anything, no matter what your limitations actually are. And that's like really one of the one of the biggest things I love about the show. Mm-hmm. 
one of my memories from childhood is of Star Trek is the eerie horror that it does, and I think the fate of Hansen, who is the colonist that they're in communication with. Hansen. 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 Who? Which? We're minutes away, Hansen. He's the older guy that they get up on the screen. Who's he's kind of got burns on his face. A oh bit. yes, yes, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yes. that's fine. I've forgotten all about him. <laughs> Yeah, there's a slight eerie horror that Star Trek does very well. Yes, it does. In the same way as, as the fate of Captain Pike, that's quite a familiar episode as well. Yeah. It's where they show parts of the parts of the pilot episode where... Yeah, the menagerie. Parts one and two. The menagerie, that's right. So, so they, there's the episode where they show Captain Pike as, as the Kirk-esque strapping hero, but in the the present day scenes we see that he's had some horrible injury yeah. since and it's never and it's never the, kind of nobody ever knows what that is there's an eerie horror to that sort of thing that star trek does very well very little outright violence but just the sort of thing because of the tone of the show and these unsettling moments it's the kind of thing that will slightly disturb a, a young viewer like me yeah do you know what the very, very first time I ever saw an episode of Star Trek, I was staying at my brother's house. I think I was about, I think I may have been about maybe nine or ten. And I was a very, I, I was very, very, very wimpy about anything that was remotely scary until I was around about 35. And the episode that was playing was The Man Trap, um, which is the, the, the first episode that was, that was shown. The Alien of the Week is like a it's not a blood sucking one it's like it's a salt sucking one uh she's that she put her like her hands on various people's faces and sucked all of the salt from their systems and killed them and you just saw these like red pock marks on their faces and then at the very end you saw what the alien actually looked like because she it was also a shapeshifter it was a really scary looking alien. Well, it was a scary looking alien to me. And I screamed. Is it the one that, it's kind of got a, a big round mouth on it. Yes. I know the one, yes. And I screamed my head <laughs> off. I was terrified and I cried and I was hysterical. I was like, Ian, please, 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 please turn it off. And because obviously my brother was a really kind and benevolent man, he said, uh, no, it's my house. I'll have whatever I want on. <laughs> I, I know sarcasm when I hear it. <laughs> yeah Star Trek is very good at scary aliens Yes it is The one is. that really freaked me out when I was little And there's a lot of them that did But it's the episode where they turn people into powdery cubes Yes I know the one Yes mm, Or a powdery like hexagonal yes. prisms Or whatever the shape is I think it's hexagonal prisms or octagonal prisms Something like that And And it's all quite horrific but that scene towards the beginning where it's two of the crew yeah get turned into these crystals and then he crushes and know, one and then, of them and he crushes one and you don't know which yeah. one it is until they revive them just the fact that that was done so passively and it was that was quite a horrifying moment and yeah for for a show that is so quiet and so it has a lot of humor and a lot of quite smug humor <laughs> It's a very smirksome show. Yes. There's a lot of smirking and knowing glances going on, but it does quiet horror very, very well. It does, and I think it's because you are expecting more of the knowing humour and more of the the glancy, smuggy... I, mean, I don't find it that smug, but I get what you mean. 
you you are expecting it to be more you're expecting a lot more levity from it yes and then it will catch you off guard with something with something like that a taste of armageddon was the substitute episode that i suggested uh fortunately we don't need it tasting much sweeter than wine that's right the premise of, of that episode is that there has been a 500-year war between two planets. And instead of a, there actually being any battles, they get civilians to put themselves into disintegrating machines because if they don't, then an actual attack may take place. So they are making people commit mass suicide. And it just is so jarring and so horrific, the very thought of it. It's quite shocking for certainly for 60s television, to go down that route and to address things like genocide, like enforced suicide and that kind of thing. But it just, it goes right out there and will will address the undressable. For people who haven't seen much Star Trek, there is this idea that it's cheesy hijinks, it's cheesy hijinks and it's Shatner's acting, which actually he doesn't really, he doesn't do that way of talking that really everyone doesn't. says there, there is there, there i mean there is cheesy hijinks don't get me wrong i mean there's definitely cheesy hijinks but it's not all there, the cheesy there is, there's less cheesy hijinks than you may imagine and when there is cheesy hijinks it's glorious in the extreme but they kind of ration it a little bit the episode ends with only one fatality on the side of the good guys and it is of course the the Tom young Wilson. man who was going to get married because of course it yeah. is and do you know whose fault it is? The dirty fecking racist bastard. <laughs> yes, you, because, t- you tell him. Yeah, because there's a problem in the in the in the weapons room where Tomlinson and Styles are, and Spock comes in and he's like, "Hey guys, can I help?" And Styles goes, "This time we'll handle things without your help, Vulcan." Like, whoa! And he meant it to sting. Um, Spock's just like, oh, okay. I, know. And, I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Um, and he goes off, and then two seconds later, something blows oh, up. This, pink, um, this, this gorgeous pink, this smoke, pink smoke, smoke coming out appears from something. Um, Spock has to save the day, like he does, because he's Spock. But he rescues the he wrong one. Yeah, he, he rescues Styles. And not the very nice young man who was getting married. He doesn't get to Tomlinson in time. So basically, Styles' racism, Tomlinson's death is all racism based. All the fault of racism. It goes to show how it's not just the targets of racism that suffer. We all suffer from bigotry. We all suffer from bigotry. So don't be just a twit. Don't do it. But actually, I, I could have done without that because it's a... And I know we're nearly 60, well, we're 55 years down the line from this now, but it's a bit obvious that there's a wedding at the beginning that gets interrupted. And at one point she says, I'm going to marry you. Oh, you mark my words. And so it's obvious that one one of them's going to die. You are not going to be unmarried by me. <laughs> I know. It's it's a bit too, it, it's, it's like somebody having their last job before retirement. You know that they're not going to make it that far. It's my last case before I retire and get the boat and sail around the Bahamas. And then he gets shot two seconds later. Exactly, I know, yes. I know. But I did think that the the way that that final scene was acted was quite powerful, really. Mm. Because although there's like there's nothing you can say at a time like that, when you've just lost the love of your life on your wedding day, there's not a lot that your boss can say to you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
to make it any better. Um, he tried, but he didn't have the words, and you could see how much he felt for her as he walked away from her because he, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that, you know, the relationship had ended tragically. He'd lost a crewman, and there are, there are many episodes where Jim talks about how how very, very responsibly he feels for each of the 430 lives that he has on the ship. He's he's a very devoted captain to each of each of his crewmen. He's shown to have a particular relationship with each of them. He appears to be very, very approachable. So he's grieving the loss of his crewmen. He's he's grieving on behalf of the other crewmen who is grieving her, you know, the loss of her soulmate. And then when she says, I'll be all right, even though they both know that she's lying, and he walks off, you can see on his face just how he's he's physically having to pull himself together because he realises that he's walking through a corridor that has already, that has got other crew members on and he has to be the strong captain for all of them because they're all grieving too. So he has to be the one to not feel the feelings that he's very, very obviously feeling. And the way that sort of Shatner's whole body changes as he's just walking through, it's maybe 10, 15 steps and there's so much acting going on and it's but it's not even really acting it's like these are really raw visceral emotions that are going on and I just don't feel like he gets enough credit for those subtleties everybody's all the 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 bonkers yeah syntax that he uses (laughs) or or when he when he completely overacts and does like crazy throwing himself around the set and spinning around like a mad loon and (laughs) you know but things like that I think I don't think there are very many actors who who can just exude emotion so in such a raw and yet channeled way as Shatner does I love Jim Kirk a lot is what I'm saying I can I can tell he's he's my guy he's my bro (laughs) I just thought that element was it was needlessly sad it was sad without necessarily being poignant in the way that the sad element of the following episode has a poignancy and a pathos to it. Yeah. This is just, here's a sad thing that's happened and it's just needless, needlessly sad. It's just a downer way to, and even there's poignancy in the death of the Romulan captain and the death of Centurion and we, that's poignant, but this does feel like, here's a needless bummer at the end of the episode. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not so sure it's needless, but oh, yeah. um, I know you are. <laughs> no, I, I, I know. I really, um, I really liked the ending of that. It was because I mean, Tomlinson himself, we didn't care about him. Yeah, but you were left in no doubt that other people on the ship cared about him. Like you felt like he had his own backstory. He seemed like a very nice young man. He seemed like a very nice Unlike young man. Unlike certain people we could mention. Shush. I made a little note here about the contrast between Doctor Who titles. Although this has quite a, this actual episode has quite a melodramatic title, Balance of Terror. But I made a, a little note about the contrast between Doctor Who titles, which are things like Monster of Death, Robots of Doom, <laughs> Planet in Space, <laughs> and Star Trek titles, which are things like For the Stars Are Awake and I Hear Their Song. The man with a hollow mind. And the Argonaut wept at the turning of the sea. 
There are all those sorts of titles. Yeah. Which I quite like. I like Doctor Who titles are very pulpy. There are sometimes things like The Enterprise Instant and The Devil in the Dark. City at the Edge of Forever is a good one. That's a good poetic title. That is a good poetic title. What's that What's that one with Joan Collins in that everybody says is the best one, but it's actually really dull? Um, <laughs> oh, I can never remember the name of it, but it's like the world's longest title for anything. Um, oh... Is it the city on the? No, it's not the city on the edge of forever. That's a complete. That's in series three. My children oh, were what, fair what? and had stars in their hair, but now they are content. Oh no, what's it? I'm trying to remember the title of that Tyrannosaurus Rex album, which is the world's longest title. The children, my children were fair and had stars in their hair, but now they're content just to wear shoes. It's something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the city on the edge. Yeah. The city on the edge of forever. Yeah, the city on the edge of forever. I don't, I don't understand why. But anyway. I would like to quickly mention my other podcast, Cardboard Cinema Club, which is surprise, surprise, a film podcast. We've already done American Werewolf in London, the 1932 film Freaks. I've done. A Hard Day's Night with... Who did you do that with? I don't know. Who was it? I don't know. It was you. Probably somebody. Oh, was it me? I was going to say it was probably somebody, you know, really charismatic and beautiful. I've done Oh Lucky Man. (laughs) Oh Lucky Man and Shaun of the Dead. So if you fancy listen to... Shaun episodes and if you listen to this way in the future there will hopefully be many more episodes as well but cardboard cinema club and also coming soon head head hopefully some point soon yeah it has a bright pink logo with blue lettering on so you can't miss it yes and a great theme tune oh the theme tune it's the best well thank you you're very kind so that's the end of part one tune in again because you still have to tune in podcasts tune in again next time Part two. We are 98.4. We certainly are. I mean, you're a bit younger. I am a little. You've always been younger than me. I still am. Even now. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.